welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 26, Alma chapters 23-29. through 29. They never did fall away. This week's guest is Wayne May. He was born and raised in Wisconsin, and he's been a convert to the LDS Church for more than 36 years. He served in four branch presidencies, three elders quorum presidencies, seminary instructor, gospel doctrine instructor, veil worker at the St. Paul, Minnesota Temple, and currently is serving as gospel doctrine teacher of the Menominee, Wisconsin branch, Oakdale, Minnesota Stake. His wife, Christine, is active with Wayne in the archaeological discoveries of the Midwest. Together they published the quarterly magazine of Ancient American, which has been in continuous print for 16 years and covers the pre-Columbian Americas. Wayne and Christine are the parents of seven children and grandparents to 16. Wayne is an author of four books on the subject of Book of Mormon archaeology in North America. He gives firesides to members and non-members alike. Wayne has been presenting information on the topic of North America's archaeological data since 1994, which demonstrates how it applies to the Book of Mormon timeline. Hi everybody, I'm Rod Meldrum and I'm excited to have you join us for another uh, one of our podcasts. We are very excited about having a special guest with us. Uh, this is this is Wayne May and a lot of people uh, know him already, but he is one of the foremost experts in the church on the subject of the ancient uh, civilizations of North America, the Mound Builder Civilization and the Adena Civilization. And uh, we are excited about having him join us. So uh, this lesson for this week is on Alma chapter 23 through 29. And uh, this is composing several chapters that talk about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. While we have Wayne, we're going to uh, spend um, more time on some of the aspects of metallurgy, which is just briefly mentioned here in these chapters. But uh, as you know, basically we want everybody to know that uh, the, this is from the Come Follow Me manual. Uh, our, our goal here is to take some aspect of the lesson and then go in, into depth and detail because we're not going to cover all of the different uh, aspects of the lesson manual. We're assuming you've already done that. But we're also using the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon here for our reference material. And so if we go to chapter 23 here, I wanted to point out a couple of quick things and then we'll, we'll bring Wayne in here when we get to uh, chapter uh, 24 here, um, talking about metallurgy. And, uh, and then we'll have some opportunity to talk about uh, swords and, and, and head plates and breast plates and, and uh, all kinds of different uh, things that involve metallurgy. So does that sound good, Wayne? Yes, absolutely fine. All right, fantastic. All good. Okay, so chapter 23, we're going to start off here in, uh, in verse uh, 6. And about halfway through, it basically talks about as many as the Lamanites had believed, as believed in their preaching, were converted unto the Lord, never did fall away. The preaching here of these missionaries was so powerful that when the Lamanites were converted to their to the gospel, they never did fall away. And uh, I want to uh, to share with you a little bit about that. This is in, on page 247 in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon. And this is a, a little quote here from Elder Ezra Taft Benson. But he says, The Book of Mormon is to be a standard unto my people, which are the house of Israel, saith the Lord. And that is from 2 Nephi chapter 29, verse 2. It is a standard we should, we should heed and follow. In the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord devotes several verses to summarizing the vital truth which the Book of Mormon teaches. So this is a Doctrine and Covenants uh, section 20, uh, verses 17 to 23, and also 29 to 31. 
It speaks of God, the creation of man, the fall, the atonement, the ascension of Christ into heaven, prophets, faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost, endurance, prayer, justification, and sanctification through grace and loving and loving and serving God. Quote, we must know these essential truths. Aaron and Ammon and their brethren in the Book of Mormon taught these same kinds of truths to the Lamanite people. This is from uh, see, uh, Alma chapter 18, verses 22 to 39, which were in the darkest abyss. After accepting these eternal truths, the Book of Mormon states, those converted Lamanites never did fall away. If our children and grandchildren are taught and heed these same truths, will they fall away? We best instruct them in the Book of Mormon at our dinner table, by our firesides, at their bedsides, and in our letters and phone calls, in all of our goings and comings. That's from Ezra Taft Benson, A Witness and a Warning. Uh, that's from his 2009 uh, Deseret Book copy. So basically, when we become truly converted to the gospel, if we ad adhere to the Book of Mormon, we will never fall away. Then it talks about in verse uh, 13, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Now, I wanted to just make one quick mention here, and that is that when it comes down to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, I thought, why would they call themselves anti-Nephi-Lehi's? Well, that word anti is an interesting thing because it actually comes from the Egyptian. The Egyptian is anti, A-N-T-E, basically, and it means the one of, or a, a person of. And so when it says anti-Nephi-Lehi's, what they're saying is a person of, Nephi and Lehi. And, it came, and, and basically in verse 16, it says where the name came from. By the way, the information I just mentioned about the Egyptian is actually on the bottom of page 248 in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon. And now it came to pass that the king, this is verse 16 of uh, chapter 23. Now it came to pass that the king and those who were converted were desirous that they might have a name, that thereby they might be distinguished from their brethren, Therefore the king consulted with Aaron and many of their priests concerning the name that they should take upon them, that they might be distinguished. And it came to pass that they called their names Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and they, and they were called by this name, and were no more called Lamanites. And they began to be very industrious people, yea, and they were friendly with the Nephites. Therefore they did open a correspondence with them, and the curse of God did no more follow them. They are essentially saying, we are no more... Namanites, we are of the people of Nephi and Lehi. So that's uh, that's a, a little clarification on the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. So we know one of the most famous aspects of them is that they they made a covenant that they would never again fight against their brethren, the Lamanites. This is chapter 24 and verse 14. Uh, there's a portion here in the Annotated Book of Mormon that has the gold bar, basically, that, that's that has highlighted, he doth visit us by his angels, that the plan of salvation might be made known unto us, as well as unto future generations. So they talk about this plan of salvation. Now we've already talked about this with Amberly Nelson in a previous podcast, but on page 250 of the Annotated Book of Mormon, uh, it talks about the plan of salvation, which is, which is actually very unique to the, uh, the, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other religion out there, folks, that have the same understanding of the plan of salvation as we do, which was all from Revelation from Joseph Smith and, and from the scriptures. But interestingly enough, there is an amazing earthwork in Newark, Ohio, that has the entire plan of salvation encoded into its gigantic 
structure, which is over four square miles in extent. If you want to know more about that, you go to Amberly Nelson, her second podcast that we did with her uh, fairly recently, and she and we have a, an amazing discussion about a 2,000-plus-year-old uh, earthwork in Newark, Ohio, that has embedded in it the in the the octagons and the uh, the squares and the circles and so forth uh, a, a representation of the entire plan of salvation as only the restored gospel of Jesus Christ can give it. There is no other religion on this earth that could interpret this four square mile temple complex, which by the way is the largest in the world, and even today. So I just wanted to point that out. That's in uh, verse 14. And now we want to get to the stuff that we're going to talk with uh, Wayne about here. So verse 16 of Alma chapter 24 says, And now, my brethren, if our brethren seek to destroy us, behold, we will hide away our swords. Yea, even we will bury them deep in the earth, that they might be kept bright as a testimony that we have never used them at the last day. And if our brethren destroy us, behold, we shall go to our God and shall be saved. So, Wayne, I wanted to have start off our conversation here a little bit with the first, the first thing that they're mentioning here in this verse is, the, is, is something called a sword. <laughs> so, um, what, uh, what evidence is there? Well, first off, what exactly would we say is a sword? Because there seems to be some misunderstanding about what a sword is. There's some people who believe that a club with obsidian blades in it constitutes a sword. But uh, swords historically have not been a, a wooden thing. It's, it's been made out of metal. We, yeah, swords are definitely metal. They go way back. I mean, uh, you know, when you, um, a lot of people don't realize that even, even swords, the, the, the Romans, uh, a lot of their early swords weren't any more than over just 12, barely 12 inches long. And it's just simply known as the Roman short sword. And uh, people think that all the time they got to find something that's huge. And, and there are big swords, don't get me wrong. But uh, there's also a lot of small ones. And uh, in the record here in North America, when you really peruse the old mound builder books, now you got to remember, archaeology was not set up yet at this time. So what we have, thank goodness, we had enough educated men from different fields who actually dug the mounds and some of it was recorded in their diaries, field notes, journals, whatever. And they saw plenty of evidence for swords. But what you will find in the record is that they will talk about the hilt, and then they'll talk about this stretch of rust laying right down from the hip to the knee. And that's, that's the iron blade. It's long gone back to the earth. So there is no sword to physically pick up. Now, some have made it through, but very, very few. But you'll find the hilt, a couple times, even a sheath has survived in the mounds. And all this material is in the mound builder books from about 1870 to about uh, 1920. That's where you'll find talk of this material. Wow, yeah. And in fact, uh, if, you, if, you, if you have your annotated Book of Mormon here, I want to, uh, to show you a picture. This is actually from, on page 251. And I'll uh, just kind of pick it up here so you can kind of just see the... Uh, see it there a little bit but on page 251 in the annotated book of mormon it actually talks about a sword and there's a picture of a guy here that was taken actually by wayne and uh and this picture shows a a, a, a large ancient iron sword was found buried deep in the soil on the shores of lake superior 
although not dated, it has uh, ancient hallmarks, but this is basically a, uh, a, very, a very large sword. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Wayne? Yeah, I sure can. Um, uh, this man's name is Harold, by the way, but I won't tell you his last name. <laughs> I'm trying to buy the sword, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> That's private information. However, he was walking on Lake Superior. This is about four or five years ago, walking his dog out on a beautiful morning on the sandy beach. He just saw it. I don't know if it was the tip of the blade or the what's called the tang where the handle uh, goes off, but a point of it was sticking out of the sand. And he literally just grabbed this thing and just pulled it right up out of the beach. And there it was, voila, and this big sword. Now, the friend of mine who put me on to this is Dr. Don Spahn, who lives downstate Michigan. And Don, he is a good old boy. I mean, he's a straight guy. He's into isolation. It's hard to say the word diffusion, but at least you can talk to this guy without getting upset. And that's why I like Don. But when Don writes about this particular sword, he calls it a big knife. He can't bring himself to say the word sword. That's almost like blasphemy because we all know the Native Americans didn't have swords, right? Now, let me tell you the rest of the story. This same guy, Harold, he went to the university in Toronto, Canada. He was ready to give them this wonderful find to add to their collection in the museum. And when he got there, the curator thanked him profusely for thinking of them, but he said, we cannot accept this item. Well, Harold was blown away. He said, what do you mean? You don't only have anything this size. And they said, well, that's the problem. We know, all know that Native Americans did not have swords. Therefore, this falls into the category of fringe archaeology, and we cannot have this in our museum but thank you very much and have a nice day. Now that's the gospel. This is what happens over and over again in North America. And I could show you myriads of cases. Matter of fact, I'm actually thinking about writing a book about French archaeology. It's really that dense out there. Well, I, I tell you what, there's, a, there's another page in the Annotated Book of Mormon that I want to, uh, to bring out as well. This is on page 162, and if you take a look at the, uh, the page here, there are a number of different artifacts that have been discovered here in North America. And this goes all the way back to uh, Mosiah chapter 9, verse 16, which it says, I did arm them with bows and with arrows and with swords and with scimitars and with clubs and with slings and with all manner of weapons. That's Mosiah chapter 9, verse 16. Um, and, and swords and scimitars are interesting. Wayne, what's the difference between a sword and a scimitar? Well, the obvious, just from looking at it, a scimitar has a curve, and that's what we see here on the bottom of this page and the one at the top. They both have the curved blades, and that's also very common in the Middle East. Matter of fact, in the Middle East, their earlier swords, they made more scimitars than straight-bladed swords. The straight-bladed sword was there, but it was heavier use as metals developed coming out of Western Europe. But the scimitar was very popular where Israel was and their neighbors around them, the curved sword. And I can show you, I can take you to 10 private collections and show you private swords, straight and scimitar, 
mostly made out of copper, a couple made out of iron that are in really poor shape. I mean, the iron guys in the acidic soil of Midwest, it just doesn't make it. Let's, let's talk about that for just a little bit because there's been people who have said, well, you know, if the Book of Mormon is true and they made all these iron swords, where's all the iron swords at? But uh, people need to understand that when it comes down to iron, as it, it, I mean, cars don't even last that long. Maybe you know, 50, 60, 70 years, and cars are starting to rust out. You know, cars that were made back in the early 1900s and 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 uh, and so forth are mostly completely, uh, you know, rusted away. Even uh, bridges and so forth, and and in, in almost anything made out of metal is going to rust out pretty quickly in that that humid climate of the Midwest. So anybody who would expect to find steel, for example, um, expecting that that's, that's something that's not probably going to happen. Iron takes a little bit longer typically, but iron basically turns into rust, which is eventually what will just be a, a, a red stain in the ground, won't it? Yes, that's it. It's just a red layer of dust. If they get down to it without you know, losing it in the dirt because it's so fine, if they get down to it and they can see it, they just see a layer of red, red sand laying right there, right beside the deceased uh, body, you know, by the hip of the person. So fact, it's gone. Now, there are, uh, in fact, Pennsylvania, we have that, one want, really good iron sword. Can you tell us about pages 162, any of the swords on there, well, the symmetry? I'll tell you, the iron sword, there's a real nice one in Pennsylvania. There's a real nice one out of Utah. And there's two in Texas. And we also have a bronze sword that came out of North Dakota, which I have shown before at your events, bronze. We also have some bronze points that came out of Illinois and Oklahoma, and they're also in private collections. Uh, an LDS man was moving earth on his farm in Texas. Now, you can find this at BYU. It's there. When he removed this pile of earth, he uncovered a sword. And because he was LDS, he contacted somebody at BYU in that type of thing that could help him with, with metallurgy. And they said, well, send it to us. And he did. They sent him the sword. They looked at it. And they said, this sword was, excuse me, it wasn't steel. It was bronze. And they said, this sword would be an actual fit for something out of the Mediterranean about 100 BC, maybe to 100 AD. But the problem is, it was in Texas. Therefore, it must be fake. Now, that's at BYU in one of their study programs because the paper came out of BYU. I contacted that same professor, and I, I wish I could remember his name on my – I just don't have it in front of me. But I contacted that professor, and I said, would you give me the name of that gentleman, member of the church in Texas, so I can contact him just to show the sword. The professor at the Y would not give me that gentleman's contact. I contacted the professor at BYU because I want to get a hold of the guy that owned the sword in ancient american magazine and he they refused to give me the name of this man to contact him in texas so right now that story stands as a fraudulent sword even though it's made out of bronze and it looks like something on the middle east but it came out of texas if they would have found that in central america it would have been on the front cover of the ensign probably so yeah hey uh, well i actually that's that i want to go back for just a second and talk about uh some of the um the uh, the differences between the metals, because many of our, 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 our viewers here, our listeners, may not be aware of the difference between, for example, bronze, brass, um, iron, steel, 
and uh, and what kind of ores are necessary to uh, to to have those. So uh, I, I was just going to just very quickly just mention the difference between bronze and brass. Basically, both of them begin with copper, but then bronze has tin in it. So it's a, it's an alloy between copper and tin, and that makes bronze, which was kind of what was used primarily in the old world. But here in America, uh, or actually I should say in the Book of Mormon, it specifically talks about brass, which is a which is a alloy between copper and a a uh, it's called zinc. And uh, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about they had gold and copper and silver and ziff, and we're thinking maybe that ziff is actually potentially could be zinc, which we, you would need to have in order to alloy those two together to make brass. And then iron and steel, the main difference between that is the carbon content of the, of the metal. So uh, if you add more carbon to it, it becomes more carbon steel, and, uh, and, and that's the, one of the differences between iron and, and steel. Do you want to add anything to that, Wayne? Well, I was going to say, uh, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but there are zinc mines in uh, northwestern uh, Illinois. And uh, they many the hopeful amounts. It's just that the finished products weren't there with it. So they don't know what do they use the zinc for. And so we don't know for sure. But again, it could have been used for obviously metallurgy. That's the big, the big hope. Uh, on, on page 39 of the, uh, of the Annotated Book of Mormon, uh, it talks about this is clear back in 1 Nephi chapter 19, verse 1. It says, I did make plates of ore. And, uh, and, and there's, there are places there in 1st Nephi, with, this is now in the land of Nephi there, and they talked about, uh, so in the, in the Annotated Book of Mormon, we have information about like the Cooper's, Cooper's Furnace and other uh, uh, places around um, Etowah, Georgia, and up into um, Tennessee that actually had uh, the different ores that are mentioned. Um, and that's another thing that I, I think I'd like to have uh, Wayne maybe address here a little bit. And that is all of the metals that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon, um, specifically while they were in the land of Nephi, are around an area that is in Tennessee. And around what city is that close to, Wayne? Uh, Morristown. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean Book of Mormon? I'm sorry. <laughs> talking about Book of Mormon or Morristown, Tennessee? Well, yeah, both. In the land of Nephi. Well, area. we believe that. Yeah. Yes, the land of Nephi, of course. Yeah. And that was a, let me just expand on that a little bit. Early on, when I first started doing this, 93, 94, 95, I knew about all the copper coming out of upper Michigan, but I didn't know about all the ore in Tennessee. In Morristown, Tennessee, I went there to visit uh, a Cherokee gal who had contacted me through Ancient American, and she had this cave that she wanted me to look at. And in seeing the cave, her name is Leslie Kalin, by the way, and uh, she's on the rolls there for the Cherokee, and uh, she's very active with her, with her people. And it was a lovely cave, great petroglyphs, really neat stuff. But when we came out of the cave, now keep in mind, all these years, all I've got for copper with the Nephites is upper Michigan. And yet, I've got Nephi living in Tennessee, and I'm thinking to myself, if he's running up to Michigan to get copper, he's going to run into the Mulekites probably a whole lot earlier than what the Book of Mormon says at 400 years. So I was concerned, where is the copper down south? Well, I came out of this cave, we're standing there visiting, and I look over here and I see all these pits. And they look like pits from upper Michigan. 
And I just asked her, I said, what are the pits? Is it, are you guys just digging holes in your property? She said, oh, no, those are ancient copper mines. And I thought, hallelujah. I got my copper for Nephi, because Nephi used copper right away to dress up the wooden structure of the Solomon te of the temple built after the pattern of Solomon when he separated from Laman and Lemuel. So I thought, man, what a relief. And the big relief was nobody asked me that from 1994 to 2005, where's the copper in Tennessee? <laughs> and so I escaped that one. I would have said, I don't know. <laughs> and, and now I got it. It's in Tennessee. It's all over. The, it's in Georgia, too. In fact, going back to page 65 in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon here, we have um, on the bottom right-hand corner is a, is a photo of one of the placards in the McClung Museum in, in uh, Knoxville, or, yeah, Knoxville, Tennessee, um, University of Tennessee there. And it actually shows some little copper beads, and it says, Southeast Tennessee may have been the nearby source of the copper used to make these beads. And in fact, um, in, on, on this page, we also talk about mining in Ducktown, Tennessee. And, uh, and this is from Second Nephi now, chapter 5. We actually have several scriptures here. I'm gonna, as far as Book of Mormon metals, what evidence exists for the sourcing, smelting, and manufacturing of metals into tools, plates, and objects mentioned in the Book of Mormon? And uh, in Jerem chapter 1, verse 8, it gives us the first um, idea of uh, what, what kind of metals they found here on the Promised Land. It says, and we, did mul and we multiplied exceedingly and spread upon the face of the land and became exceedingly rich in gold and silver and precious things and fine workmanship of wood in buildings and machinery and in iron and copper and brass and steel, making all manner of tools of every kind to till the ground and the weapons of war, yea, the sharp-pointed arrow, the quiver, the dart, javelin, and preparations for war. Now, in 2 Nephi, it tells us again some of these metals. It talks about iron and copper and brass and steel, gold and silver and precious ores, which it says in 2 Nephi here was in great abundance. So this was, again, this is still in the land of Nephi area. And then Mosiah also is talking about this in Mosiah chapter 11, verse 8. It says, It came to pass that King Noah built many elegant and spacious buildings, and he ordered them with fine work of wood, and all manner of precious things of gold and silver and iron and brass and of ziff and of copper. So those are the primary metals that are talked about. And interestingly enough, every one of these metals uh, that were found primarily in the land of Nephi area exist all around what is the, the largest city in the general area there is Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, Ducktown and these areas are, are, are within you know, radius of, the, of those areas. But uh, this, it's really interesting to see that the very first gold rush in this dispensation was actually not in California. It was actually in, this, in, in Tennessee and uh, Georgia, that area. Uh, so there's copper ore that is there from uh, different mines there at Ducktown and other, and other places around that area. Really about, about a radius of about uh, 30, 40 miles radius from Chattanooga, Tennessee, Every metal that is mentioned in the Book of Mormon to be there in the land of Nephi is in fact there. And I wanted to also share a couple of other things here about that. Um, this is now, now I, just for information's sake, um, I am pulling some, a few uh, slides basically or images here 
from the DVD set called Book of Mormon Evidence Number no. 2, which is talking about Book of Mormon Metallurgy, which is the third disc in the set. And so this is all in that set of the DVDs there. But this is called Mining at Ducktown. And it says, you know, copper was used by Native Americans in the Copper Basin area, and European settlers rediscovered copper at Copper Basin in the tri-state area of Tennessee, Georgia, and North Carolina in 1843. Started mining it. Mines produced, get this, this is what's really interesting. Mines produced copper, iron, sulfur, zinc, and small amounts of gold and silver. Before 1900, Copper Basin was the largest metal mining district in the southeast, and the last mine closed in 1987. Now, uh, this, this is from uh, Western North Carolina Heritage. This is uh, talking about mines and minerals there. And they talk about that uh, the, the uh, second paragraph down says, There is not a single county west of the Blue Ridge, that's the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee, that does not contain rich abundance of iron ores. So this is talking about uh, iron. And then also the, these other, these other um, if you want to read those for yourself, basically, it talks about all these other different kinds of things. But uh, one thing I did want to point out, though, the third paragraph down says, This is the center of the mica mining and of considerable excitement about minerals. So the ancient Hopewell Malbuilder people, they like to use that mica for what, Wayne? Uh, basically, it was, uh, well, two things. Basically, uh, uh, designs, uh, you know, beautiful things, but they also use, I'm sure, for passing messages, for reflecting both. And they also covered their dead in it sometimes. So oh, it yes. had a multiple, multiple use. Many yeah. of the barrels were completely uh, covered. Can, the ground was covered with sheets of this mica uh, clear up into Ohio and Illinois. So this mica yeah. was being mined down yeah, there. It my, says, my all around the hills are spotted with diggings. Most of the mines which yield well show signs of having been worked before a very long time ago, no doubt by the occupants before the Cherokee Indians. That was the, a book called On Horseback back in 1889. So what, we have other, other um, information that actually shows that when the first settlers came into this territory around Tennessee, they were finding actual mine shafts going back into some of these ore deposits, and they asked the Native Americans, they said, who, who, who was doing this mining? And they said, we don't know. It was somebody before us, but we weren't doing this mining. So that kind of tells you a little bit about uh, the earlier people, which were the, obviously the Nephites here, and if, if our geography is correct. And then uh, th th I'll just, uh, this is from the Heart of the Alleghenies here. Um, just talks about these mounds and, 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 and so forth. So I'm not going to read all that. Uh, if you want to, uh, you can uh, refer back to the DVD. But uh, this has some, some just amazing information about that. So bottom line is we also know that the Book of Mormon had furnaces, right? And it says that in 3rd Nephi, it says they were thrice, they were cast into a furnace and received no harm. 4th uh, Nephi said they had cast them into furnaces of fire, um, Mormon chapter 8 verse 24 says, Yea, even the fiery furnace could not harm them. So the Book of Mormon also talks about having furnaces. What would be the purpose of furnaces if they weren't smelting stuff? Well, I just say that it's obviously smelting. There are smelters, I mean, from Wisconsin to Ohio. They're, they're, they're around. It's not a secret. Of course, when they are spotted by our professionals, they, they right away think it must be historic. Again, 
not allowing the Native Americans or anybody before them to have the savvy to understand how to work with metals. Exactly. So, um, so what evidence is there for, for ancient smelting? Well, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about just briefly. Uh, I have this, this book right here, and uh, Wayne actually introduced me to this gentleman. His name is William Connor, Bill Connor, and he wrote this book. He's not a member of our faith, but he wrote this book called Iron Age America Before Columbus. And on the front cover, it shows a picture of him when he was 20, I think 21 or 22 years old, and he just became the first uh, science reporter for the Chillicothe Gazette, which in, in Chillicothe, Ohio. Um, Wayne, would you like to tell us a little bit more about Bill Connor and what he discovered out there in Ohio? Well, he had a chance to work with uh, Mallory there, and uh, Mallory, was, he was the expert on furnaces. And uh, I know they found at least around 20, possibly 30, and uh, they, they identified them, uh, a couple of them completely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Mallory compared the furnace construction to a Roman furnace about 100 AD. He said it's the same type of construction. He said, uh, you know, hist hist histor historically, no one would come into America today and build this type of furnace. It's something from the ancients. And yet uh, they're all fluffed off as being stuff that the French and the British uh, ran around and did during the French and Indian War. It's just absolutely silly. So uh, Mallory was the guy. I mean, he just, he knew this inside and out. But the good thing is, is that Connor, he was able to sit at his feet and learn from this guy. And then Connor carried Mallory's work deep up into our time. And right now, uh, Bill, he's, golly, he's got to be in his high 80s. Uh, he might even be at 90 by now. He's really up there. But uh, one of his best contributions that came later was at the Garrett site when him and his grandson found the clay mold with the iron axe head still inside. That is absolutely, I mean, it's undeniable. Wait a minute, you're telling me you that they found go away. <laughs> it's awesome. a, uh, they, they, they were working on a, a, a furnace site. They dug up a, what looked like a rock and then they broke yeah. it open and what was inside of it again? Well, no, they didn't break it open. It was partially exposed. It's the clay mold and the iron axe head is still in the mold. And on the backside, which was, which got saved, which was nice. You could see where they, it got the molten iron was poured into the mold. It's the pour hole, which means they had to have a portable crucible to hold that hot metal. I mean, this is really big deal. It, it's awesome. And luckily I got it. I've got that artifact from Bill. So it's preserved. So we will have that to pass along. Yeah, that is, that, that is such a powerful Now, one. I want to share oh, something by the way, else with you, Rod. Is that? Go ahead, yes. Yeah, I want to share something that's brand new. This is brand new, okay? Can I hear a brand new? Brand new. <laughs> We've got uh, Dr. Brand new. Dr. Robert List and uh, Don, Don McEwen, they stumbled onto, well, first of all, List was looking at these huge slag piles on the Pearl River, just off the Mississippi. I mean, they're massive. I've written about them in Ancient American. He knows that one was for lead, but one was for iron. And so out of curiosity, just to be sure, he took the one that was iron, 
he shipped off samples to a laboratory at one of the steel mills in Pennsylvania. They came back with a report, and I got to tell you, this, this is going to blow your socks off. They said, yes, you have a iron slag pile, but it's not from iron slag. It is from steel. Steel slag pile on the Pearl River. This is brand new. We just got this this summer. I mean, just right now, it's, it's hot. And uh, as soon as they get it put together, we're going to put that out in Ancient American and uh, make it available to everybody. And then when I come out in Utah, whenever we get to come out, I'll come out and I'll share this with you from Dr. List. This, this is incredible. Steel slag. We got it. Well, see, that, and that's one of the things, folks, that you need to understand is that whenever you have smelting going on, there's, the, you know, there's one thing that is left behind that's unmistakable because it doesn't happen in nature. Basically, you have rocks that have uh, glazing and so forth on it, but you also have this slag. And in fact, I wanted to, uh, to share with you for just a second here. Uh, let me get to the right part here. This is talking about uh, right here, actually. Uh, Book of Mormon Furnaces. This is um, from the Complete History of Illinois. Uh, this is back in 1874. It says, The circular fortification was surrounded by two walls with an intervening ditch 20 feet in depth on Paint Creek. This is in Ohio. This is 13 miles west of Chillicothe. Besides other extensive works, was discovered the remains of a walled town. It was built on the summit of a hill about 300 feet in altitude and encompassed by a wall 10 feet in height, made of stone in their natural state. The area thus enclosed contained 130 acres. On the south side of it, there was found the remains of what appeared originally to have been a row of furnaces or smith shops, about which cinders were found several feet in depth. So numerous were the works of this kind in Ohio, it would require a large volume to speak of them in detail. Then it goes on to say here, this is from uh, Micah Schweitzer, the prehistoric treasure in the fields of Indiana. This was actually a... Uh, on, on the NPR radio. And uh, I just wanted to, to share with you just a little bit about this because this is so interesting. It's talking about some of the same areas where Wayne is just mentioning. But uh, this says that the fields are called the Man Hopewell site after the farmer who owned their sprawling 500 acres. Two of, sites, uh, two of the site's earthen structures are among the biggest mounds built anywhere by the Hopewell. Amateur archaeologist Charlie Lacer began walking the man fields in the 1950s, collecting what he found along the way. Now, the deal was is he could only pick up what he found on the surface. There was no digging involved. He could not dig to get artifacts. He just had to pick up what he could find on the surface. He said, uh, he said quote, you could find stuff that you could not find on any other site around here, Lacer says. I mean, there were just tons of materials there. You couldn't pick up everything you saw. You had to be kind of selective, particularly if you were carrying this stuff in your pockets because he would wear um, like uh, jeans. And then after a while, he stopped wearing jeans and started using bib overalls because his pockets would become so heavy with all the artifacts in him that he basically, they were, his pants were falling off. So he put uh, oh, oh, the suspenders on there, right? So Lacer managed to stuff a lot into his pockets, 40,000 artifacts that he donated to the Indiana State Museum two years ago. But the interesting thing about this is, is this is still part of this same article here. It says, but there may be even more remarkable discovery, one that could rewrite the history books. Linderman says scientists are starting tests 
on what looked like evidence of lead smelting, a practice that until now was only seen in North America after the arrival of the French 1,000 years after the Hopewell tradition. So uh, this is really fascinating that they had lead smelting. Well, I had the opportunity to go to the Indiana State Museum where Charlie Lacer actually had, had given all of these artifacts to the Indiana State Museum there in Indianapolis. And we went in and talked to the curator there. As we were talking and so forth, I had it with me a friend of mine who is a metallurgist. I didn't know this at the time, but he was actually a metallurgist from General Motors. And, uh, and so when, when she found out that he was this metallurgist, she said, so how would you be able to know if something that you find that was lead was smelted lead or if it was natural lead? And he said, well, that would be easy. We could do this test or this test or this test. But he said, but the easiest way to know was there, did you find any slag associated with that? And she kind of was tapping her face like this. And she said, well, and she said, well, okay, come over here. She came over, opened up some drawers, and Wayne, it was, the drawers were filled with samples of slag from all the slag piles that they had all over there on, on the Man Hopewell site. And the bottom line, they, that the lead was, in fact, uh, smelted lead, and they were smelting lead there in, on the Man Hopewell site. So this is a, another indication of what uh, kind of things are going on there. Um, also, I just want to point out, though, uh, that the 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 uh, the artifact that Wayne has in his possession that came from uh, Bill Connor is actually, if you take a look, if you know, we're hoping that you might have this one as well. This is uh, the the exploring the Book of Mormon in America's Heartman. This is the uh, uh, book that uh, that I I did some years ago here. But on page, if you have this, I'm just going to kind of hold this up here. But on page uh, 152 and 153, right here, it shows, uh, there's, a, there's a, a picture here of, uh, of Bill Connor. Let's see if we can get that there. There's Bill Connor, and you can see um, the, the artifact there that he had was is, is on, on this page right here. I'm, I'm pointing basically to it right there. That's the artifact that Wayne has in his possession now. Now, the, also, he found other rocks that have high-temperature glazing on them, which is what you can see there on the, other, on the uh, right side. This is even a, a better picture here of, the, of that, right, right here where my fingers are, right there. That's the, uh, that's the artifact that Wayne is talking about here. And Wayne gave me a kind permission to, to, uh, to, to add that to this book. But here's also a copper smelting brick from a copper smelting furnace. They had copper smelting. Um, Wayne, what, how much copper smelting was done in Central America that you're aware of? They didn't have any swords. <laughs> There's no swords south of the Rio Grande. Any swords down in Central America or smelting or evidence for them actually smelting copper or iron or steel or... or... No, not till after about 700 A.D., way late, way late. Now a couple of other things I just want to point out here in this in this book. It's this, uh, this is by the way this this book has become thanks to uh, so many of you who have been so supportive over the years. This book is the number one best-selling book in the church on the subject of the evidences of the Book of Mormon. Um, and, 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 and so uh, this actually shows some of the different copper artifacts and knives and uh, and uh, animals that are that are represented in copper that they had the bears and uh, vultures and deer and, uh, and goats, for example. 
Um, these are some knives. This is a copper scroll. This is showing some of the different uh, metals, gold and copper and silver. Basically, the main metals that are mentioned over and over again in the Book of Mormon are, uh, are all here, right here in the heartland of America. But this has been a major sore spot for people who believe the Book of Mormon to be an actual history of real people and places and events because in Central America, they weren't doing anything with metals until long after the Book of Mormon time frames, about eight or 900 A.D., as Wayne was saying. But this was happening back in the land of Nephi area, which was about uh, 500 to, to uh, about 200 B.C. So this is way before, and these things that we're showing you here, these all date into the Book of Mormon time frames. These were done by the Hopewell Mound Building people. So here we have even breastplates, and, uh, and, here they, they, and they talk about here in Alma, chapter 31, which we're not quite there yet in our Come, Follow Me, but it says, Behold, O oh my God, their costly apparel, and their ringlets, and their bracelets, and their ornaments of gold, all the precious things which they are ornamented with. So we here we have ringlets and bracelets. from the, These are from archaeological finds. Ornaments of gold. This is from the Peabody Museum at Harvard University that came out of a, of a, of a uh, Hopewell mound. And, a, and a, an official archaeological dig. We have breastplates made out of copper, just like described in the Book of Mormon here. And then finally, uh, here, here's some more. These are, uh, these are breastplates that are found in different museums. Basically, all over back east, there's breastplates. And uh, how, how, many, how many head plates and breastplates would you say you've seen over your course of your study of the Book of Mormon here, Wayne, in the heartland of America? I've probably seen uh, over 100 of each. Over a hundred, maybe two. There's there's a lot of them around. Um, the best ones are in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, they only show a couple out on the, in, on display. But they've got a whole bunch in the back room. Yeah, most of the time museums don't have enough room to show very many of these things, so they don't really show a lot. And then that gets that gets us to basically page two eighty nine in the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon here. If you want to turn there for just a second, I want to point out a couple of things, 289 and 290 here. These are actual artifacts that have been discovered. Um, this is from Alma chapter 43, verse 19, which says, Moroni had prepared his people with breastplates and with arm shields, yea, and also shields to defend their heads, which they later they also called head plates. Uh, these are from uh, different museums. The, uh, the upper left one that you can see there is a copper plate from the Hopewell culture. This is from Sipe Mound in Ross County, Ohio. And this one is on display right now at the Ohio History Connection in Columbus, Ohio. And then the, uh, the one next to it is actually at Hopewell Culture National Historical Park in Chillicothe, Ohio. And that's another breastplate there. Uh, you can see from uh, older books back before the days of, uh, of uh, color photography in books, there's that. There, there are several other things there that they have uh, skulls there that have head plates on them that were found in archaeological digs. In fact, there's another. Um, there's one that they even call it a head plate there, and this is also at the uh, Ohio History Connection in in uh, Columbus, Ohio. But they have numerous head plates and breast plates and so forth, exactly as described in the Book of Mormon. On page one, on page two hundred ninety. Um, Wayne, would you want to tell us a little bit more about this arm shield? Well, can, I want to add some first on the breastplate. Yes, yeah, please, please. Okay, can, can you can you pick this up? Can you? This book here, 
Dr. Case. What's that? Dr. Case and Christopher Carr. And the interesting thing on here, when they talk about breastplates, they're digging in Mound 25 at the North Fork Works. Now, all of Hopewell will use the dig at Mound 25 and everything else at the North Fork to become the, the model, uh, become the guide for all Hopewell finds from this time forward, okay? This is going to set the precedent. It's like a template. Anything that matches what they find now is going to be Hopewell culture. And in Mound 25, I've got that you're not going to be able to see the photo here. I'm just going to show it. This is on page, um, let's see, page six. This is on page six of this book. These guys are digging here, and it says right here they find 69 copper and iron axes, and they also find 92 copper and iron breastplates. Now, here's the kick. I've been to almost every Hopewell Museum from Kansas to New York. You will never see an iron axe or an iron breastplate or an iron headplate in the Ohio Museum listings. They're all tucked away in the basements. Now, this guy in this book, the Scioto Hopewell, Case and Carr are hollering foul to all their peers. They're saying, hey, guys, we have too much information that's buried in our basements and in our museums. It's got to come out. These guys are heroes in this book. They're heroes. And they're working hard to show that Hopewell had a whole lot more going on than we give them credit for. Why, why do you think there's such a uh, bias against the Hopewell having highly advanced metallurgy skills? Well, you see, the, the more sophisticated these ancient people, because they, they, first of all, everybody's an Indian, okay? Everybody's Indian. Indians can't do anything. But if we show that there's a sophisticated society, a civilization in North America, then that becomes a problem for the whole Manifest Destinies thing that, that Steve Smoot covers so well. That's a big fear. So you got to dumb down the Indians so we don't have any entanglements with the Eastern Hemisphere. No entanglements. Nada. Nothing. And the only way they can do that is to keep the Indians barbarians or not even citizens of this country. Yeah, they have, to, they have to try to downplay how amazingly advanced these civilizations were. Um, and they don't, they don't want to accept that fact because if they did accept that fact, then they'd also have to accept the fact that Joseph Smith had it right, that the Book of Mormon actually has it correct, that they actually did, in fact, have these metals, and they did actually do smelting, they did actually have gold and copper and silver and iron and steel, and everything that we are talking about here in the Book of Mormon has been found archaeologically, um, but unfortunately, none of that has been found in Central America. It's completely devoid of any evidence to support the claims of the Book of Mormon uh, down there. So, so, Wayne, tell us a little bit more about this, uh, this arm shield. Well, all I could tell you is that uh, Danny, Lawson, Danny Lawson did a lot of uh, metal detecting in and around Nauvoo, and he found this in a creek 
right in just outside of Nauvoo on, on the edge of the city limits. And now I got to tell you, it really does look like an arm shield. Um, again, of course, you can see it's in, it's in uh, rough shape. It's been in the, on the water and the mud and the dirt for centuries. But when you look at it and you see the photograph with the arm on the thing, I mean, it really looks legitimate. I think that's Danny's arm, actually, that is, that, that is sitting on the arm and so forth. And then, then uh, just above that are two um, similar kinds of arm shields that are, that are from Oak Mulgee Mounds Museum in Macon, Georgia. So you can actually see that they are very similar to each other as far as their overall you know, shape and size and, uh, and, and, and even the, the thickness of the metals there. Down below that is, a, uh, is an arm band or an arm shield. This, one, this, this, this other arm shield would be one that would be down to closer to the wrist. But the one that we have down below that is actually one that would be up here basically on the bicep area. And it has a beautifully engraved turtle on it. It was found in the in the construction of a road um, in Ohio there, and uh, and basically that uh, was it actually uh, Dr. Lou Erickson now is the owner of that, um, and he kindly let us uh, have uh, have permission to uh, use the photos. But it's a it's copper. Rod. It's uh, finely made. Just absolutely fantastic of this uh, a tortoise, and it's a, and it's a American tortoise, so it's a uh, a tortoise that is well known um, from the area around uh, the Ohio area. Right. So clearly, yes. I want to cover Mound Twenty Five a little bit more. Okay, the man that they found in Mound Twenty Five was a seven foot guy. Also, they will tell you he had copper armor on his breast. He had copper armor on his arms and had copper armor on his legs. None of that has ever been seen, but I'm quite sure it's in the Chicago Field Museum if someone could find a way to get access to see it. Now in Oklahoma, at the Spiro Mound, they also dug up a man there out of the Central Mound and he also was covered in copper armor. Yes. The problem with that was it was done during the depression and the men doing the work hauled off most of the artifacts and sold them for their mental value to feed their families. And that's the sad part. We've lost so yeah, much good stuff so in this much. country. Yeah, it's, it's just sad. sad. It really is sad. My goodness. Well, a, a lot of people have, have talked about this. Uh, you know, in order to have a... Um, <clears throat> A civilization that needs to have armor, you have to have really a lot of people. You have to have a large civilization, so you have specialization of labor, uh, people learning how to actually make steel. You have to have uh, people taking care of their other needs, like food and water and clothing and so forth. So you have to have a specialization of labor to make that happen. Um, one of the things I wanted to point out here as we go back to Alma here for a second... This is on page 260 in the Annotated Book of Mormon. And uh, this is from Alma, Alma chapter 28, verse 11. So this is in part of our, our lesson material here. And it says in Alma uh, 28, 11, let me go ahead and, and uh, read the, actually verse 10 first. It says, and from, this, and from the first year to the 15th has brought to pass the destruction of many thousand lives. Yea, it has brought to pass an awful scene of bloodshed. And the bodies of many thousands are laid low in the earth, while the bodies of many thousands are moldering in heaps upon the face of the earth. Um, moldering in heaps upon the face of the earth. There were many thousands that they talked about here. 
heaps of earth. Sounds like a mound to me. What do you think, Wayne? Yeah, <clears throat> I saw my first one as a Boy Scout. Uh, I was in probably, uh, oh man, probably sixth or seventh grade. We were on the Chippewa River, which flows into the Mississippi. We had to wade across uh, to get, get to an island. And it was only waist deep, but we, we carried all our stuff over. And uh, that evening, we had our campfire, and there was a huge hill in the middle of this island. I'm going to say huge. It was only about maybe 10 feet high, but it was probably about uh, 20, 30 feet across, okay? And the water is coming from the north. On the north end of the mound, the mound was pretty well straight from getting hit by floodwaters every time the spring would hit that mound and, and hit it pretty hard and erode it. And then on the south side, you could see it tapered off. It was nicely shaped and round. And so that, that evening, our scoutmaster, I'll never forget this, he walked all of us over there to the, the side that was eroded from the spring waters every year over, over the millennia. He shows us this thing, and he points out little specks sticking out of the mound. And he said, what do you guys think these little specks are? Well, we're all looking. And, of course, a couple guys started to grab one and pull a couple out. And, oh, my gosh, here's a whole bone comes out. It's a bone. Well, what are these? This is a bunch of deer. No. He said, these are people. This is a battle mound. This thing here was huge. They had a fight here. And these are all the dead guys. That's the first time I saw a battle mound in person. And I tell you, I, I never forget it. I never forget it. Ever heard that story from you before, Wayne? That is fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. New yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> well, on, on, on that page two night or, yeah. or two sixty in the Book of Mormon uh, annotated edition here, it talks about the bodies of many thousands are moldering in heaps upon the face of the earth. How many mounds are there? Now, this is a question that so many people have asked. And originally, there was a Cyrus Thomas map, which is actually what you can see here. The Cyrus Thomas map was back in the uh, 1894. And in the Cyrus Thomas map, it shows somewhere around about 100,000 or so uh, mound sites. But I wanted to, to make people available. That there's, there's, there's newer information than stuff from back in 1894. And this book right here. This is called the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Native American Indian Mounds and Earthworks. This is by Gregory Little. And in this book, on page three of this book, and this is what we have quoted here in the Annotated Book of Mormon. I just want to show you the actual book here so you can see it. This is it's showing right here. It's showing the, um, the Cyrus Thomas map right there. And then on the next page over, this is... Um, or no, excuse me, on the next page back, I should say. On page three, this is what it actually reads. So this is on page three of, the, uh, of, this, of this book. And this is what it says. It says, quote, The most common question that is asked about mounds is how many exist. In the 1800s, the Smithsonian sponsored many expeditions to identify mound sites across America. A map shown below was produced by Cyrus Thomas in 1894 in a Bureau, Bureau of Ethnology book. They found approximately 100,000 mound sites, many with complexes containing two to 100 mounds. So if you have 100,000 mound sites, and many of them have between two and 100 mounds, that puts us at 200,000 to maybe even you know, uh, a million mounds. 
The figure of 100,000 mounds once existing, based on the Cyrus Thomas map revealing 100,000 sites, is often cited by others. But that estimate is far, far too low. After visiting several thousand mounds and reviewing the literature, I am fairly certain that over one million mounds once existed and that perhaps 100,000 still exist. So, Wayne, how many mounds would, would you think that you have maybe uh, seen over your course of study in the Book of Mormon here and your archaeological uh, magazine, which, by the way, in case you didn't catch that before, it's Ancient American Magazine. Um, I want you to tell us a little bit about Ancient American Magazine as well. But how many mounds have you, uh, have you, do you think you've personally seen? Have you got any kind of an idea, estimate? You know, I, I, I really don't, Rod, but I, I got to say, it's just many, 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 many. Uh, I mean, hundreds, hundreds. Uh, the, the best thing is, is all the sites that I've been able to walk. I, you know, going from Kansas all the way to New York and Wisconsin to, to Kentucky, I mean, I really feel I've walked or the Nephites have walked. And I've seen stuff that, man, I wish I could take everybody to see all the stuff that I've seen. A lot of it's on private property, you know, and I can't take 50 people in a bus on that. I can only take a handful. Um, private landowners get a little, little funny sometimes. They show up with too many people, you know. It's just one of those things. But there is so much stuff out there to explore. Uh, and again, about- uh, showing Little's book was good. People can pick up his book. And they can kind of take their own little ride uh, one state at a time and, and go find a lot of these sites. Uh, they, are, they are findable. You can find them. So, so tell us a little bit, how, how did you start Ancient American Magazine? And how long have you been doing that? What, do you have a couple of things you want to tell us about the magazine? Well, I'm in my 28th year of publishing the magazine. So. Um, uh, all I can say is if I die tomorrow, um, I feel good about what I'm leaving behind in libraries and universities and private hands and collections. Um, hopefully, uh, the history of this country has been saved a little bit, even though a lot of it, you know, we can't get past the doors of the universities. At least it's saved in paper form. So somebody else can come behind me and uh, go after it if they choose to do so, because there's a lot more to tell. Um, I've only scratched the surface. Um, it's nice because people call me all the time with new things that they've found, and I'm just tickled pink. And I tell everybody, this is what I see, or if it's something the way I think it is, show me something better, and I'm ready to change. So I show what I show, I speak what I speak, and that's the way it is. However, if you got something better, man, show me. And uh, I'll add it to what I have or, or change. I'm not stuck in a paradigm, you know. I mean, where I am is where I am. But if you got something better and, and it can stick on a piece, because there's people out there reading all these old books just like I have, and you find little treasures all the time when you read those books. And um, I started Ancient American for one reason. I ran around and I found out there at the time when I when I was when I should say when I was younger. <laughs> when I was younger, the uh, there were seven what I call archaeology groups in North America uh, that I belonged to, either in person or by mail. 
And I realized that each one of these groups was a pocket of anywhere from 50 to 200 people. But their stories, their findings, all of their research was staying very focused within that group. Nobody was seeing what these guys were discussing in their lectures. And I got the idea, well, my goodness, let's just give a national forum with a magazine, and these people can supply articles to Ancient American, and we can publish them out and start educating America. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah, that is fantastic. In North America, this is what Ancient American's all about. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, let's get that back. We got to, we're going to have to wrap up here pretty quickly here, but then a couple of things that we wanted to uh, also uh, pay attention to. Uh, if we go back to Alma chapter 24, that talked about the swords. We've talked about the swords, and we, we've just barely scratched the surface here, folks. Uh, we have not really just, I mean, there's so much more information that we are, are really just wanting to tell you about. But the, the, basically the sourcing, the ores, are the ores found? Is there evidence for the, the working of those ores? In other words, mining, we have that. Is there evidence for smelting and the, uh, and the uh, refinement of those metals and those ores? And yes, we do have that. We have the actual artifacts themselves that have been found. So we have an overwhelming evidence to support the Book of Mormon claims. But I wanted to bring up uh, one last thing here, um, which is actually a part of, uh, again, this is verse 16. It says that we will hide away our swords, yea, even we will bury them deep in the earth. And then in uh, verse um, 17, it says, And now it came to pass that when the king had made an end of these sayings, and all the people were assembled together, they took their swords and all the weapons which were used for the shedding of man's blood, and they did bury them up deep in the earth. And this they did, and it being in their view, a testimony to God and also to men that they never would use weapons again for the shedding of man's blood. And this they did, vouching and covenanting with God. This bearing of their swords. Is that something that Native Americans have as a tradition that may have stemmed back from the days of the Book of Mormon? Wayne, what can you tell us about that? Well, if you can see this, this is called a wampum belt. This is for the five nations of the Iroquois today, and it represents each tribe. We're talking about the Onondaga, we're talking about the Oneida, Cayuga, the Mohawk, and the Seneca. At one time, all five of these groups, this wampum belt has five symbols on it, the four squares, and one is a tree. All these tribes did not get along with each guy, Hiawatha and Daganawida, and they settled all their differences. And when they did that, they all agreed not to fight amongst themselves. And so they dug a hole in the earth. They buried all their weapons of war, and they planted a pine tree on top of the hole, and that became the tree of peace. When you go into the reservations today in New York, you will see this in great detail beautifully painted and done it's it's beautiful and this is their story of the five nations of the iroquois and this wampum belt has been around for at least a couple hundred years yeah there was a time when these five nations these five tribes did not get along with each other and the bloodshed was bad it was really really bad hiawatha along with a special person 
a sky person named Aganawida. They came in and they formed a peace treaty and they satisfied everybody. This wampum belt was made to represent that with all five tribes. And what they did is they dug a hole and they, they pledged not to fight amongst themselves and they buried all their weapons of war in the earth. And to cover that pile of weapons, they planted a large, well, they planted a young pine tree that would someday grow and become and cover that hole. And that to them is the tree of peace. And they talk about that all the time. And when you visit their reservations, you will see this tree of peace with all the other tribes, beautifully painted and shown in all kinds of ways on their decorative walls and their items or plates, and even in their films to show you who they are as a tribe. They all talk about the tree of peace. It really is a big deal. And it's set deep in their old stories. I had I, A few years ago, I had the privilege of actually going to the Seneca Nation and doing some presentations out there. One of the things that they that they pointed out to me is on their flag they had a, a white pine tree on, in the center of their flag there, and uh, and then they had two tomahawks basically crossed over each other underneath that uh, that pine tree, and they said it was it was the 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 symbol of their of their um, particular uh, clan basically I think it was, and uh, and that was showing that they had buried their weapons of war underneath the tree of peace just like you're talking about. Now I want to show you how thin this is. Look how thin this is. How's that? Okay, this piece here, I've never had it tested. It's either been smelted, a lot of their artifacts, they melted the copper because of the boiling point, and they smoothed them out and flat. And, but they did it both ways. And all way you can tell is if you actually get it tested. Wow, that is, that is awesome. Well, Wayne, did you want to have? Did you have anything else that you wanted to share with us? Oh, uh, golly! Um, just thinking about the book itself. Um, one of the things that, that did that did catch my attention, just real quick, it's in chapter twenty-four, and it's verse um, twenty-nine, twenty-four and twenty-nine. This is. Um, the the fighting and talking about the Amalites and the, the, the Amalekites, this really jumped out at me when I reread it. It's nice to see that because, first of all, the other the other groups are mixed. I mean, the, the Amalekites, I'm, I know they're mostly Nephites, but they're going to have some, some Lamanites. Chapter 24, verse 29, it says, Now among those who joined the people of the Lord, there were none who were Amalekites, or Amulites, or who were of the order of Nehor, but they were actual descendants of Laman and Lemuel. I w it tickled me to see that Laman and Lemuel groups are still separate and still exist, even as late as this 90 and 77. I, I just really like that. Other people on this continent, and I know that at some point, everybody's pure descendant of Nephi. I can't remember if that was Mormon or Moroni that said that, but they, but they, somehow they knew they had kept track of their ancestry to the point that they knew that they were a pure descendant of Nephi. So uh, th these people were, were clearly taking, you know, taking care of, of tracking their ancestry as well. Well, Wayne, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time with us, and uh, sorry for all the uh, the um, 
technical difficulties, but the internet out there in Wisconsin is just not that speedy, apparently. Well, not where I live. They're out there in the bushes. But uh, listen, Wayne, we, we uh, want you to know how much we love and appreciate you and uh, keep up the great work that you're doing. I want to uh, just take just a couple of minutes and, and share with uh, our, our, uh, our, the, those who are watching and those who are listening um, just a little bit of information about Wayne. These are his, uh, his books here, basically. I want to just point them out. This is uh, This Land series. This is This Land, Zarahemla, and the Nephite Nation. Then uh, book two is uh, Only One Camorra. has amazing information about uh, Only One Camorra. Book three is This Land, They Came from the East. And again, these are just a wealth of information. for th These are primarily for uh, people who are members of the church here, by the way. Uh, volume four is This Land, America, 2000 BC to 500 AD. These are some, some of these are excerpts actually from Ancient American Magazine and other additional research that Wayne has done. And then the, uh, the fifth in the series is called This Land, Willard's Camorra Land. This is uh, Willard Bean. Uh, he's talking about Willard, Willard Bean, who is the, the uh, individual who was called on a mission for three years and ended up staying 25 years there in, in, in uh, Palmyra area and helped the church actually to obtain the actual Hill Camorra of the Book of Mormon and, uh, and some of his observations. Wayne also has a series of DVDs that are just fantastic. We want to just share with us a couple of those with you here. He has uh, more than this, but these are some of the ma main ones. This is called Hebrewisms in uh, North America. And you can kind of see that. This is talking about uh, people who are Hebrews have certain cultural uh, significant items that basically show that they are Hebrews. And this is showing some of those Hebrew um, uh, uh, cultural items. So uh, this is called Searching for Mayan Ancestors. So Searching for Mayan Ancestors. Wayne, you want to just tell us just really quickly a little bit about Searching for Mayan Ancestors? Well, that's a big surprise. People will find out that the uh, the Mayans are not Hebrews. They're Hindus. That's the big surprise. All right, and, and then, then I didn't make this up. Yeah, it actually comes from the book uh, called uh, Hindu America, right? Yes, by Shaman Lao. Shaman Lao. Other DVDs here. One of the first DVDs that uh, that I I first saw here. It's called Book of Mormon Archaeology in North America. This is Volume One. He also has a Volume Two. But this has got some just fantastic information about the archaeology here in North America. Then then he also has uh, this is an, an early one here. It was called The Mystic Symbol, Mark of the Michigan Mound Builders. And uh, this, this one talks about Hen Henriette Mertz and uh, her discovery of this symbol that was on a lot of the artifacts that, they were, that she was finding. A lot of farmers had artifacts with this symbol on it. And she figured out that the symbol was basically the, the, the symbol of the ancient Hopewell Mound Builder people, or specifically their god. And, uh, and then that, uh, that, what, what does that signify, those, uh, that mark? yod hey Va. Yep. Read from right to left. What does that sound like to you, everybody? Sounds like Jehovah. 
And that's, in fact, uh, Wayne, do, would you like to tell us just a second more about what that, uh, what that means? Well, it's a, it's a name of God, but there's a four-syllable, but they don't say it because it's, they don't want to do that's blasphemous to say the full name of God without having a particular ceremony. So this is the name they can speak out loud, yod Hey va Amazing experiences he's had with some of the Ojibwe uh, people up in the, uh, the upper northeastern part of the United States um, when he was back at some archaeological conferences some years ago, and that's, that's uh, for a different time. But then we have also Camorra Land, The Last Stand, which is another of uh, Wayne's uh, DVDs here talking about uh, the hill Camorra and that this is uh, showing forth the evidences for that. You have Jaredites in North America. This is another great uh, DVD that you can actually get, get your hands on. Uh, Wayne, you want to tell us just a little bit about Jaredites in North America? Well, <laughs> it's just that the, uh, there's a lot of good information. I, I really thought it would be hard to put that together, but the, gee, the more I dug, the more came out. And there's a lot of surprises there which I'm not going to say, but you will be amazed when you see what's there, and it's all backed up scripturally. All right, and then we have uh, the last couple here that I brought with me is, uh, is Hagoth, builder of ships, master seaman. Would you like to uh, tell us just a little bit about that? You'll find in there where Hagoth set sail, and I'm pretty convinced where he left from, and I'm not going to tell you that either. you got to find out for yourself but it will also back up the DNA in North America in a big, big way. All right, and then the last one that I brought with me was the migration history of the Lenni Lenape and into Eastern North America, a parallel account to the Book of Mormon. Yeah, this is by um, Frenchman um, Raphael Raffinesque. Uh, he got pals with the Delaware Indians who are the descendants of the people of the Walam Alam or the Red Book, who are called the Leni Lenape, and they talk about a war and actually conquering those who built the mounds and the forts on the rivers of the eastern half of North America. Right, fantastic. Well, uh, folks, we're just a last couple of uh, quick things here. I'd like to go to just a couple additional of the uh, the slides that we have. Talking about that, I mentioned about the gold fields, the Appalachian gold fields. This is from the mining and metallurgy of gold and silver. From This is clear back in 1897. And they're talking about the gold fields of the United States may be divided into two grand geographic sections, those of the Atlantic Slope or the Appalachian gold fields and those from California. The Appalachian gold fields may be considered to be included within the boundaries of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, and Alabama although other states have occasionally some also as, as well. This is actually from an open file report from USGS, uh, U.S. Geological Survey. This is gold, silver, and copper production from significant deposits in the states of Tennessee, Michigan, Illinois, and Pennsylvania, all of which are, are uh, the Hopewell you know, main, main lands there. So this, this is in metric tons of how much gold, silver, and copper have been found in all of those different states. This is from Indiana Historical Society, talking about the occurrence of raw materials, copper, silver, and iron are specifically mentioned as being in Hopewell mortuary sites within the eight major uh, regional traditions. This is an actual head plate from Ohio Historical Society. There's a, uh, another a drawing of a head plate uh, that was done. This is a, uh, an individual... 
in an archaeological dig that was uncovered, and uh, this is his the skeleton, and on the top of his head you can see the copper head plate. This is from the Mound Builders by Henry uh, Chitrone in 1936. This is another picture of a different uh, burial there, and again had head plates on. This is a breastplate, another breastplate, and this breastplate is interesting because it has these little shells on it, little uh, little beads. Each one of those beads is drilled. And the interesting thing about those beads is they are actually pearls. They are actually freshwater cultured pearls. And the interesting thing about that is if you go to 4th Nephi chapter 1, verse 24, it says, Now in this 205th year there began to be among them those who were lifted up in pride, such as the wearing wearing of costly apparel and all manner of fine pearls and the fine things of the world. So there we have uh, the evidence for not only breastplates, but pearls on the breastplates. Also copper goat horns and other copper implements. These are actually images from the book that I was showing before, but you can see them now a little bit more clearly. So you have uh, things like uh, flocks and herds. There are potential uh, goat or, uh, or deer horns. Uh, vultures are specifically mentioned in the Book of Mormon as well. Uh, there's either copper bear or a pig effigy. Uh, this is a, a piece of copper. There are copper ear spools and uh, harpoons, obviously for uh, possibly for hunting fish or other kind of game. Uh, other copper artifacts here. This is the, talking about the gold and the copper and the silver. These are actual artifacts that have been discovered in the Hopewell Mound Builder civilization and tradition, along with the Jerem 1.8 scripture. This, these pages are from the uh, Exploring the Book of Mormon in America's Heartland. And then here again, showing this, uh, behold, uh, the, the costly apparel and the precious things. There's a, a copper scroll. And then this says that this is from the Pioneer History of Western New York, talking about several hundred pounds of axes that were uh, they were found in Aurora. The author said that most of them were without any steel, but that the iron was of superior quality. So uh, this this is again these are all from uh, from these old books back in the 1800s when people were actually uh, plowing these things up and finding them and then reporting this information in the uh, in their in their books. So uh, again, this is a, this is Will, Bill Connor. That's a picture with uh, Bill Connor here, and uh, Mallory and Connor in a in a iron furnace. This is a copper smelting furnace or an iron smelting furnace um, when he came out there. And these are glazed stones right here. Some you can see some of the glazing on these stones here. Uh, this is high temperature glazing that was caused by the smelting process which again does not happen naturally in nature like this, especially all around an oven, which is all these have been discovered with that around there. So uh, this is the iron axe head. This is a little better shot of that, so you can see that more clearly. This is the iron axe head. Interestingly enough, it doesn't look like European axe heads. This actually looks like the stone axe heads that the Hopewell Mound Builders used. This is one of the other ways that we know that this is an actual Hopewell um, axe head. And uh, this is a bar that had some inscription on it. It's an iron bar. And this is the book, again, called Iron Age America Before Columbus. And it talks about this in the, um, the, the, uh, the picture book, which is what we call it there. So there's all about information, talking about the furnaces here as well. Here. So bottom line, oh, there we go. Wayne, tell us about that. Hold that up again. Just a really <laughs> nice axe head. Yep. It's there. 
Yep, it's all there. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope you'll join us again. And uh, for more information on Wayne, we're going to have you back again uh, a couple more times before the end of the year because there's got a lot of archaeological things that we want to share with our with our listeners. Would that be okay? Okay. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Book of Mormon Evidence podcast. Supplemental study. Click the like button and share it with your friends. Be sure to go to bookofmormonevidence.org, which is a hub with all the links that you would like to the podcasts, to upcoming events, the store, 200 plus answers about the Book of Mormon, as well as links to our streaming site, which now has over 100 new videos from our virtual expo. If you want to see the expo, go to comefollowme2020.org, and you can also see them on the streaming site, bookofmormonevidencestreaming.com.